and welcome to another Monday Morning Book of Mormon class with Kevin Hinckley. Recorded live, we dive deeply and deliberately into this inspired scripture. How far we get in one class depends a lot on the material and the doctrines left for us by ancient prophets. A single chapter may occupy one class or many. Of course, opinions expressed by the teacher or the class members do not constitute official church doctrines. Join us in this adventure and discover the hidden treasures found within his pages. And now, on to the class. Welcome to today's podcast. This is a little bit different in that generally we record this podcast in front of a live class on Monday mornings at the Allen Texas Stake Center. We are currently in between semesters, which gives us a chance to maybe address a couple of issues, which we did in the last podcast, and then again in this one. So let's begin this one today, which I'm going to do not in, in the studio here as opposed to being in front of the class. But I want to address a, an issue that I think begins to come up now as we begin to plunge into the middle of the Book of Mormon, particularly in the writings of Alma. And I, I want to begin this discussion by asking a very simple question. In the long run, uh, would you rather be saved or transformed? In other words, is the great plan of salvation about salvation or is it about being transformed and changed and to becoming like our heavenly parents? This begins to be a important distinction and it has a long history when we start taking a look also at the, the history of Christianity in general. So let's go back just a ways. When we look at uh, the beginning of the New Testament, remember again that the very first book in Christian history is not the Gospels. The very first book is the book of Thessalonians uh, rec recorded by Paul. That's because Paul is going to do his preaching. Uh, he's going to write between about uh, A.D. 44 and A.D. 55 to 60. And the first gospel, uh, the, the gospels of the New Testament, that being Mark, isn't actually written down and recorded uh, until the early 60s, we think. So Paul's writings are the earliest information that we have about what do the ancient Christians, that first generation, the first century of the church, what did they feel and what did they believe? How did they see their world? It's actually very simple. If you read Paul's writings, he's very clear about the fact and he's very open that as he establishes these small house churches among Ephesus and Corinth and Athens and Thessalonica and all of these places, what he's doing is establishing a little kingdom of heaven that borrowing from uh, the, sermon, the, uh, the Lord's Prayer, from the Sermon on the Mount, he, he's saying, 
thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, the, the goal of these ancient Christians was not to figure out who's going to be saved and who goes to heaven. The goal of these ancient Christians, under Paul's direction, was to prepare heaven on earth, to be heaven now, and to prepare themselves for heaven to come, to join them on the earth. So they didn't spend a lot of time worrying about who's sinned and who hasn't and who's been saved and who hasn't. It was simply about uh, becoming Christian, allowing Christ to change and mold who you were to become uh, the potter's clay, if you will, and to be molded and changed. And then if you did some things to kind of reject God's grace, in other words, you didn't keep the commandments or you're doing things that you shouldn't do, then the, the request was that you met a nail. You turn around and you join again and accept the grace of Jesus to continue to mold and shape and change you and be part of heaven on earth as we prepared then for heaven to come. And this is going to extend on for the next uh, couple of centuries, actually, where the goal was not to try and get to heaven. The goal was to prepare for heaven to come to us. Now, we have, we have shades of that, by the way, in our early church history in latter days where they were trying to prepare Zion and waiting for uh, heavenly Zion and, and maybe the city of Enoch to join here. There's kind of a parallel there. So when does it change from a gospel of transformation to a gospel of sin and salvation? It comes about a hundred years after uh, Constantine is establishing the, the church in Constantinople. As they prepare to have the, uh, the Vulgate translated, under the direction then of St. Augustine, Augustine is going to begin to direct uh, the church in a di little different direction. And that is that in his own writings, he records how smitten he was uh, in the early days by the early writings of the Christian fathers. But as he grew older, he grew more and more in love with the writings of Plato and the early Greek philosophers. Those Greek philosophers managed to make God a uh, impenetrable force that was uh, a sovereign in the sky that was so far removed from mankind uh, and, th and thinking of the traditions of Zeus and Ares and uh, Aphrodite and, and Artemis and all of those. They were distant and they were out of touch. And they began to see mankind as uh, weak and distant and the goal was somehow to curry God's favor. So as they were translating into the Vulgate, uh, the Bible and the writings of the Gospels, now we get instead of when you break the commandments, instead of metaneo, turn around and be transformed, it was translated as come and do penance and be baptized. In other words, the whole concept of keeping the commandments was broken down into that you have sinned and that you have broken something. You have wounded the gods 
and as a result of this, you need to make penance. Now, think about it for a sec. If you're going to make penance, who is it that decides what penance needs to be made, how much penance needs to be made, and when it has been satisfied? Well, obviously, that's when it becomes about uh, the priests, and they're the ones that are going to decide. So salvation, at that point, is going to be about uh, the, the things that you have to do inside the church, that the church will guide and direct what you need to do. This is where we're going to develop the sacraments, and you need to participate in all of the holy sacraments. You have to do them well under the direction of the priests and the church. Now, the idea was always, though, that you're never going to quite do it perfectly. So what happens to, to somebody who's going to, to die? Well, you die not knowing if you've ever done enough to earn, have curried God's favor enough to make it into heaven. So that's where we get the idea of purgatory and that they were then doing indulgences in the churches for the living, taking care of their dead who are somewhere languishing in purgatory for some unknown period of time as they were going along. The second thing is you'd have to decide under that direction who's going to heaven and who's not. At that point, it's no longer about being transformed. It's about making it to heaven. It's about who goes to heaven and who doesn't go to heaven, what it takes to go to heaven. Have you done enough to make it to heaven? And consequently, then what happens to all those who don't go to heaven? those who haven't done the sacraments, who didn't receive uh, the last unction, the, divine, the uh, last rites before you died. And so immediately then what they got was a plan, a Christian plan that on its surface would condemn the vast majority of people that have ever lived who would ever yet live to hell. Most people would never make it because it was going to have to be administered by and directed by uh, the church and the things that they were doing. And it's interesting that a thousand years later when the reformers, Calvin and Luther and others, are going to come in and they're going to rail against uh, the excesses they saw of the church, what did they come up with? They come up with an even more uh, austere plan and that is again that you need to confess Christ uh, that you're going to be saved by the blood but at the same time a belief that man never becomes righteous because what's going to happen for anybody that might make it to heaven is that they're only going to be there because they were they had righteousness impugned in them this impugned righteousness was like taking uh, righteousness and pouring it into a vessel that would never be good enough but it gets to go to heaven because the righteousness of God has filled it and that's how the atonement of Christ was seen so even then under Luther and Calvin uh, the goal was still and the question was who makes it to heaven and who doesn't what does it take to make it to heaven and when you step stood back and looked it would be the same thing 
as what Augustine was trying to say, only worse. And that is that most people would never make it to heaven. Again, there would be a chosen few that accepted Jesus, that believed on the Bible, did it right, didn't break any commandments. And if you didn't do that, you were going to hell. And most people, Jews, Muslims, Buddhists, uh, most of the world would end up going to hell. So <laughs> even under even under Luther and Calvin, you still had a plan of God, an atonement of Christ that excluded and condemned the vast majority of people that would ever live on the planet. Now, I know that, for instance, in uh, Major League Baseball, if a man can strike out seven out of ten times but he gets hits three out of ten times he probably goes to the hall of fame because a 300 a lifetime 300 batting average will get you into the hall of fame but you struck out seven out of ten well we're talking about a plan a god's plan that would condemn the vast majority of people that have ever lived or ever yet would live and that this is the plan of a benevolent god if you're going to work off of the plan of sin as a way of determining who gets salvation and who doesn't. How far removed this is from the way that those first Christians understood, those closest to the time of Jesus, that understood that it was not about sin and salvation and heaven. It was very much about being changed so that as John says, when he comes in the clouds, we will recognize him. Why? Because we will be like him. For Jesus in that great intercessory prayer in John 17 to say, uh, Father, make them one in me as I am in thee. Make them one. Make them like me. You make them. They can't do it, but you will fill them and you will change them and you will transform them. For those of you who might be fans of uh, the television show The Chosen, is doing an excellent job, I think, of portraying the life of, of uh, Jesus. I love a very early quote that comes from their writing, <clears throat> and it's attributed in this, in this writing to, to uh, Mary. And she's trying to describe her attraction to what Jesus is teaching, and she simply can only say, All I know is this, I was one way, and now I am another. And the difference was him. Well, if somehow, brothers and sisters, we could take the plan of salvation and boil it down, isn't that a great way to describe it? Isn't that, doesn't that seem to encapsulate the whole thing? I was one way, now I'm another. And the difference is him. That, are, that the plan of salvation put in place in the pre-mortal life I believe was exactly that. When we came down to mortality, would we would be one way. And that one way would be incapable of living in the presence of and in the glory of God and our heavenly parents. And yet this great plan of exaltation and and uh, the atonement would be the process by which we would be changed. We would be one way and then another. And that different way would be 
to be able to come back into their presence and with them partake of eternal life. Sometimes we look at section 76 and that early fleshing out of that process still put a lot of people in a kingdom of glory but still not in the presence of God. And, and, and later on that year comes section 88 and sometimes we miss that that section 88 fleshed out even more what section 76 was trying to say and that was that uh, it wasn't going to be about what we did to quote uh, President Dallin Oaks but it's actually about what we become and section 88 is going to tell us that we become more glorious we become more filled with light as we're filled with knowledge so it's not about a gospel of salvation it's about a gospel of change and exaltation through being transformed now you might ask the question why are we having this discussion in a book of mormon class well here's the struggle and that is as we start to look through the book of mormon and we read the words now coming up of alma and other prophets we're going to find that there's uh, they're going to be saying some things that sound very much like the gospel of salvation and sins and trying to make it to heaven and and we're left with some <clears throat> questions as to why that's so <clears throat> let, let me give you several options uh, you can decide which one fits for you one of the the uh, possibilities on the translation of the Book of Mormon is one that's been uh, proposed by uh, Brother uh, Royal Skousen who's done a great job with uh, word print analysis of the translation of the Book of Mormon and he believes that the Book of Mormon was a very careful word by word translation of Joseph for the exact words of Nephi the exact words of Mormon or, ne or uh, Alma or anybody else what is probably more likely uh, for that I think people are looking, especially when we start looking at these kind of questions uh, about what salvation looks like in the Book of Mormon, is what has been called a loose translation of the Book of Mormon. And that is that as Joseph was translating and using the seer stones to be able to translate, that what came into his mind and his heart was the intent of Mormon in his writings, the intent of Nephi in what he was trying to say. And the Book of Mormon is actually very clear about saying that uh, the Lord would speak to all men in their own language. Well, what was Joseph Smith's language? If we're going to use Joseph Smith's mind as the, as the vehicle through which the words of Mormon would be understood, then he's got to use... Joseph Smith's vocabulary and understanding at the time. And Joseph, as was the first generation of the church, was steeped in this salvation theology uh, of Luther and Calvin, uh, very much focused on heaven and hell. And that this is how they would have certainly understood uh, exactly what it is that they were trying to say. The loose translation of the Book of Mormon would help us better understand, for instance, when Mormon is trying to give a discourse on the importance of love and charity, 
that what actually comes into the Book of Mormon is 1 Corinthians 13 and Paul's writings about um, charity never faileth. Well, how does that end up from the King James Version that was actually translated in the 13th century? How does that end up in the words of uh, a prophet writing in 400 A.D.? In the loose translation of the Book of Mormon, it would make perfect sense that what Paul wrote would perfectly encapsulate what Mormon was trying to convey to his people. So when we actually look at some of the writings earlier in the Book of Mormon of King Benjamin and Alma, and we're going to hear this salvation theology about uh, sin rather than transformation, we're hearing people that I believe was coming through the mind and heart of Joseph at the time that he translated and trying to understand what it is that King Benjamin and others were trying to say. The advantage of this, certainly, is the fact that for the first generation of the church, as they opened the Book of Mormon, they read something familiar. They read salvation theology in the, in the pages of the Book of Mormon, and it was comforting, and it was warming, and it was acceptable. I believe that if the Book of Mormon had started with something like Section 76, and now we're not getting heaven and hell, we're getting degrees of glory and all of that, I, I fully believe, it's my own opinion, that the first generation of the church might have rejected what they were reading because it was too different, and it, was not, it did not match what they were hearing every day in church in their own experience. So those words needed to be there. And, and also, too, then, it gives us a chance to see the learning and growth of Joseph Smith in terms of understanding heaven and the whole plan step by step. Uh, and we see the very earliest pages of that in the pages of the Book of Mormon. So at, at the end of this, without trying to, to beat this too far, we want to be able to say very clearly that um, I think there... We're, we're slowly understanding in the church, I think there's a growing acceptance towards the idea away from a gospel of uh, salvation and deciding who goes to heaven and who doesn't towards a, a gospel of transformation and allowing a far greater, perhaps the majority of mankind, uh, to make it to the celestial kingdom, whether that happens in a thousand years or a thousand millennia from years that as soon as they are transformed and ready to behold the glory of our parents, that they will be able to go and live with them. In that case, then, the, our heavenly parents put, put forth a plan that will uh, return the vast majority of their children uh, back into their presence. Um, and that, to me, is the most merciful and glorious possibility of all. So... Uh, take some time, think about it, and as we uh, continue our journey through the Book of Mormon, let's take a look and see where we see those moments where perhaps the older theology has entered into the Book of Mormon uh, and maybe where it's finally grown out of it towards the end of the Book of Mormon. Um, and I will leave that with you in, in Jesus' name. Amen. And thank you for joining us for another Monday morning class. Hope you enjoyed it. If you have any suggestions about future topics that we could discuss, 
or if you had any questions concerning something that you heard in the class, please drop us a note. We'd love to hear from you. As always, if you happen to be in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, please come in and join us on a Monday morning. We'd love to see you and identify who you are. If the podcast itself is resonating with you, go ahead and click subscribe uh, so that Apple can figure out where we are. We'd love to, to hear from you. So again, thank you for coming, and we'll see you for another Monday morning class.